2 Timothy 3.15 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, it's, It's a verb, inspired, that means breathed out. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Have you ever read a passage of Scripture and said to yourself, I know this is inspired. It is the Word of God. But had to ask the Lord, now Lord, what are you saying to me with these words in this passage? What is the Spirit of God saying to the church from this passage? Have you ever been there? We know God is speaking. Augustine said in the 5th century, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. You may have found it amusing or thought that uh, I was having a real ego problem this week when I just teased out in the email that I sent out Friday that God is speaking at Calvary on Sunday morning. I was speaking about the Word of God because to open God's book and to read His Word is to hear from God and here we are this morning. We know God is speaking. At times we are not attentive and wonder what is being said in this passage. What if we are not taking enough time or taking careful thought to come to grips with what the text is actually saying? What if what may seem like a belabored explanation of the gospel which is what the book of Romans is, an extended explanation of the announcement of good news about Jesus. What if what may seem like a belabored explanation of the gospel was by God's design special made for his children to understand and appropriate with clarity the meaning of the good news about Jesus and explaining the life, the gospel life that God has called us to. Are you ready for a fascinating passage of reasoning from the Apostle Paul as he closes chapter 3 with this paragraph? Come with me to Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. And you may say to yourself, now Eric, as you explain stuff, rather than getting clearer, it gets more foggy. You seem to have that special gift of taking the simple and making it incomprehensible. It's a terrible gift to have, especially for a preacher. Uh, But let me boil down Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and Romans chapter 3 in one verse. Eric, I like something simple. How about this? What should we write over those first three chapters? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What he says in summary in Romans 3.23. See, Eric, what's that? That's Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3. But now we come, and here he is, again, using that rhetorical device. Eric, rhetorical device. What the world is that? There you go again. This is incomprehensible. It's how Paul uses words in the text to engage his readers. Because what's happening as Paul, in a robust way, explains the glory of the good news about Jesus, there are people listening who are saying, hey, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, I have my questions. This rhetorical device called a diatribe is when you put your heckler's questions in the text. 
Remember that he did that in Romans 3, 1 through 8? He puts three more questions in the text as he ends this passage. And this is kind of a hinge point in the book of Romans where he's going to leave the explanation of ideas and he's going to start showing home movies. Next week he starts showing a home movie about Abraham because it's the video of Abraham's life streaming in Romans chapter 4 that helps us explain this matter of we believe God's promise and we are made righteous through belief. That's at the heart of the gospel. But that's next week. What about this week? I want to go two different directions with this paragraph. One, I want to note with you that the hecklers are back and they have three questions. And Paul's going to raise them. All right, you want to raise that? Okay, you want that? I'll I'll take it on. Let's raise it. Now let me answer it. And he's going to answer these three questions. You say, well, Eric, that'll help me understand the ideology, the ideas behind this passage. I have to live What on earth does this passage have to do with my life? And we'll look at two issues that we need to run after this morning. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 to 31. Then, what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For... We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law here, the word of the Lord. Now the hecklers are back with three more questions. Question number one, the critics ask, if faith in God is it, Where is the room for boasting? He discusses this and answers the question in verses 27 and 28. One natural byproduct, look at 324. Remember he uses the word gift. We've already looked at this passage. We are justified, made right with God by his grace as a gift. That's going to be an important word. Eric, how am I supposed to understand how humanity relates to God? It's given to humanity and offered to humanity as a gift to be received by faith. It's a gift. Now, one natural byproduct of salvation being a gift of God, remember, we're going to get to Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's a free gift, not earned or deserved. And therefore, we can't take any credit for it. Nobody can say, carrying the gift around, hey, look at me. Look what I earned. Earned? You didn't earn nothing, man. Somebody gave that to you. What do you mean you earned it? No, it's a gift. 
Andy and I ordered something to the, uh, this week on the internet. Unknown to us, when you place the order, uh, we're getting ready to check out uh, from the cart, and it said, we're giving you a gift. Like, what? We're giving you a gift. It was something offered that we knew nothing about that was an add-on if we had just checked out from the thing. We couldn't say, we couldn't come away from that and say, boy, we were really shrewd. We knew exactly what to do to get that gift. We, we, we earned that. We really connived and schemed to get it. No, we didn't even know it was offered. Then the offer came and it was given to us as a free gift. Now, Indy and I have had the privilege of being in some great cities in the world and riding the subways of the cities of the world and um, nothing's better than the stations in the Moscow subway. They're works of art. They're very, uh, Russians are very aesthetic, and Stalin used slave labor. But, I mean, these things are palaces, they, and it, it, it looks really great. But um, they're also artsy people, as are the French. You get on the subway in Paris, and you get off, and uh, it's not uncommon to see somebody standing there with a violin just playing away at a, at an active stop. Or maybe you'll go to another place and somebody's singing and they've drawn a little crowd and, and, and they're singing and, and they're just celebrating something. Uh, think of that. Think of the street corners in heaven that will be. This is not a political statement. It's amazing. Everything is fraught with so much politics. To use an illustration, you have to use a preamble, preamble that by the time you finish explaining the preamble, they forgot what the illustration was about. I'm going to talk about President Trump's inauguration. Uh, it was a fascinating moment. There became a moment in the inaugural ball that um, it was time for President Trump then, who, who had just been inaugurated, to... Um, uh, dance with his wife and be featured as the only persons on the dance floor. So he's out, and er, er, people wondered, why, I wonder what song that he will use uh, to do it. And of course, after you, know, you, you start into it and you observe what's going on, you realize oh, that, that makes all the sense in the world. I mean, it was a very, you know, and I appreciate some of the policies. This is not a knock. It's an illustration, please. Uh, you know, it was a very Trumpian thing to do because he cues up um, he, he cues up the song, Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. <laughs> he's out there dancing with Melania, but what further added to it, he's singing at the top of his lungs. <laughs> he's mouthing the words, and he's really into it. Uh, you know, he did it his way and stuck it in all, the ear of all his critics, whatever. But, um, you know, he was celebrating what he would perceive to be, I did it, and here I am, and I'm celebrating I want you to know in all the subways in heaven and all the corner streets, I am confident nobody's going to be standing on that corner singing Frank Sinatra's great hymn, I did it my way. Although I have a hunch that you may hear, if you have an ear to hear, some who lived in the era of English hymnody Singing Augustus Toplady's words, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? Paul says, yeah, it is. There's no room for boasting. 
All the ground is level at the cross. Rich or poor, healthy and sick, well-known and anonymous, we're all sinners, simply beggars at the foot of a merciful cross that invites us to wholeness and peace with God through belief in Jesus. All the ground is level at the cross. There's only room for one glory in heaven, and it's glory to God in Jesus Christ. There are no competing lambs in heaven, only the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The answer for the question to everyone who understands the gospel, and that's the reason we have the book of Romans, so that we might understand the gospel. The answer to the question for everyone who understands the gospel, why are you in heaven, is... I shouldn't be. I should be in hell. But God in Christ acted so that I could be given the gift of a righteous standing in Christ. And I'm here because of His grace and because of Him, not because I did it my way. And therefore, all boasting is excluded when it comes to this area of relating to God. The second question the critic raises is this. Is the God of the Bible only for Jewish people? Look at verse 29. Look at verse 30. Here they are trying to paste Paul with an accusation, and he turns the tables. Chapter 3 and verse 30 makes the great point that whether you are uncircumcised, that would be a godless pagan Gentile, or circumcised, that would be a circumspect religious Jewish person who's observing the law. He says, whether you are circumcised or not, faith is what matters. Paul, are you saying it isn't the religious people who are saved? I mean, aren't the religious ones? No, what I'm saying, Paul would say, is that the one who's believing in Jesus Christ alone, Jew or Gentile, can be saved through this one way to God. Remember Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God. Notice the exclusivity of Jesus. No one comes to God but through me. Please notice that a side point here is that our creator is reaching for all of humanity. Is God interested in Jewish people? Absolutely he is. Is God interested in Gentile people? Remember the Gentiles were considered to be the godless, the no-God people, the people disinterested in God. Is God interested in them? Absolutely. You get to Revelation 5, 9, and John says in this vision of heaven, and by your blood ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation were there. God is at work bringing the peoples of the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Is the God of the Bible only for Jewish people? Absolutely not. 
He's for all of humanity and offered his son to prove it. Third question, and this is the gotcha question. They said, oh, I'm, we, okay, if you've hammered us with those two questions, we'll get you on this one. This is the gotcha question. This is a we've got you painted in a corner question. You can't answer that. We, we, you can hear him say almost underneath the text, we've got them now. We've got them in this corner. Is the law of God done away with by faith in Christ? Look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is, and it's one of those $6 words, the antinomian group. We know anti means against. Nomian has in its stem the word for law. Oh, okay, Paul. I see what you are. You're an anti-law people. You're all of grace. You're all for no boundaries. Live however you want. Just enjoy grace. Enjoy it so much. Just keep on sinning. Keep going. Put the hammer down. Just enjoy it. I hear the gospel you're saying. That's belittling the law of God, Paul. You're excluding the law of God. You can't preach grace and appreciate the law of God. If we are saved by grace, then what you've done, Paul, is you've gotten rid of the law of God. And you've made sport of it. Their view was what makes... If, you, if one makes a lot of the grace of God, you simultaneously take the law of God, given at Sinai revealing the holiness of God, you take the law of God and you throw it in the ditch. So, Paul, you can't, you know, you've you got to have one or the other. Either you like grace or you, you where are you, Paul? Are you going to herald grace and throw the law in the ditch and let people run wild? Woodstock reruns, you know, what's wrong with you, Paul? You know, we, you can't do that. But what does Paul say? Paul was informed by Jesus' disposition toward the law. Do you remember Jesus' disposition toward the law? Remember when he came to John the Baptist and John said, Oh, Jesus, I'm not worthy to baptize you. He said, No, John, you don't understand. This is to fulfill all righteousness. Remember in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. You get to Romans 10, 4. We'll get there someday. And uh, the Apostle Paul says, Christ is the finished completion of the law. It's a really neat name for him. The completion of the law. The telos of the law, if you can stand that. Teleology leading to its appropriate end. Christ has fulfilled every obligation of the law. Set aside, absolutely not. Christ perfectly obeyed the law and then God is willing to give us his standing Christ's standing in righteousness because he perfectly obeyed the law God is willing to give that to us as a gift freely by faith so that when God looks at us he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ Paul you preach grace and people will go crazy you got to have law to fence people in but what the antinomians miss is this. Grace heals our sinful hearts from sinning. 
Grace doesn't lead to license. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. And it's not what is described as biblical grace in the gospel. Grace leads us into holiness, not away from holiness. Because it chases down our rebel hearts and we come to realize what a debt we owe this one who loved us and gave himself for us. This is what John Newton's talking about when he says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." So that then our quest and yearning for holiness doesn't grow out of a sense of obligation. I better be holy so God will accept me. It's a grateful heart trying to give to God a life on purpose lived to honor him. So that we grow in our hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's grace's effect upon us. Now, so that leads to this question. It's just us kids, so we can ask it. Is grace having such an effect on your life and mine? Grace and the realization of the grace of God in Christ heals our sinful heart's desire to sin because it grows a yearning to obey Christ out of a love for him and a gratitude for him that's greater than the desire that our flesh has to sin. And so we progressively grow up in holiness. You say, how do we ever get there? Because of the grace of God, which is like, this is a terrible analogy. It's like a junkyard dog grabbing a hold of our heart. It takes a bite, but it's a healing bite. And then it grabs a hold of us deeper. And before long, grace has taken over our heart. And then, as it reaches toward its end, it takes over our life and our disposition so that for us to live is more increasingly like Christ. All the glory of the gospel of grace. Critics and hecklers miss that grace brings us unto holiness, not away from holiness. In the strongest of terms, he adamantly rebuffs this heckler, by no means. A generation ago, there's a crazy group in the South who made what they called the cotton patch version of the New Testament. And it was a, uh, a country uh, vernacular. And whenever they would come, and this is the strongest construction grammatically in the original language to say it in the strongest way by no means this construction the negative with this verb when they got there they 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 translated it hell no because in the vernacular it's like an, an adamant no as it were now we all know that hell is a great tragedy in eternity forever and not to be used in profane speech But Paul cannot say any stronger that grace has a purpose in our life that is holy. And so the question is, is that holy purpose being realized? So what does Paul do? He gets out in front, challenges the question. So where does that leave us? How should we then live? 
Why is this important, Eric? Why is this in the Bible? Well, two things. First, we live understanding that the gospel's central holding is that faith in God's promise makes us right with God. Look at verse 28. If you liked the shorthand for Romans 1, 2, and 3, Eric, give me something simple. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Eric, I like that. Just give me the whole book of Romans. All right, it, it's 328. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 28, we hold that. It's actually a phrase that comes out of uh, uh, how to talk about judicial rulings, court rulings. Uh, the commentator may be out in front of the Supreme Court and say, the central holding of this decision is X or Y or Z. The central holding. What is the central holding of the gospel? Paul tells us right here. The central holding is this. We hold that one is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. This is Paul's position. We hold that. This is the truth of the gospel. We are made right with God apart from works of the law. Now, you need to understand that for millennia, mankind has taken a different approach. Take the ancient Egyptians. The ancient Egyptians had an approach like this. When a person died, they cut their heart out and they weighed their heart. And what they did was they would put their heart, as it were, they said the heart, this is just their view, it's not a scriptural view, the heart is a repository of all the good we've done and all the bad we've done, and it's there. And so you put your heart up there. Then you take the white feather. And you put the white feather on the other scale. And as long as the white feather is heavier than your heart, you'll be fine in the afterlife. You say, well, why do you get all juiced up about the sarcophaguses and all that stuff? You go to the British Museum. I mean, there are hundreds of sarcophagi, how, well, I don't even know what the plural is. You know, it's because they believed in the afterlife. And they believed that this scale went. You say, where'd they ever get that? For millenniums. Mankind has believed, you know, it's just, it's just between good and bad, and I better do more good than bad. Uh, you, you, you take two billion Muslims. Islam. It's faithfulness to the Quran. And if you're faithful enough, you'll reach paradise. You take some Roman Catholics who are really embedded into the sacraments, it's as long as I am engaged in a sacramental approach to the Lord, I'll be fine. If I do the sacraments, I'll get there. You say, Eric, you're, you're, you're picking on the Roman Catholics. What are you doing? Well, let me pick on the Baptists. Baptist preachers have long had a bad rap. Here's what it is. You guys spend 45 minutes droning on to the congregants, telling them there is absolutely nothing you can do to be saved. Then you spend 15 minutes telling them everything they need to do in order to be saved. You raise your hand during the prayer. You, while they're singing, you have them walk the aisle. Do you realize people didn't walk the aisle before 1830? How did Jesus... 
and his church share the gospel before Finney came along in Rochester, New York in 1830? I, I don't know. Then you, 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 you get him in a, in a side room. By the way, I came to place my faith in Christ by coming forward at the end of a service and praying at an altar of prayer. Listen clear through this illustration. Then we tell them, okay, if you say this prayer, then you'll be saved. Or then we tell them, you talk to this man or talk to this gal, and if you get together and talk and you say this prayer and you've come down the aisle and you've raised your hand, ipso facto, bang, you're in. Really? I thought you couldn't do anything. I thought that's what he said for 45 minutes before you asked me to do all of this. What is grace? What about Acts 16? And li- By the way, where did Jesus ever lead anyone in the prayer of salvation? In quietness, Baptist church today. I love the story of Lydia's conversion in Acts 16. As she listened to Paul reason from the word of God, God opened her heart and she believed. What do you mean, Eric? Are you against people coming to faith in Christ? No, I'm for it. And my charge to you today is right where you are to open your heart to Jesus Christ if you've never believed in Jesus. Because it is in believing in him, reaching with the arms of faith to receive the free gift of eternal life that we come to be forgiven, that we come to begin a relationship with God. Here's why I belabor that, because I've run into a lot of people that have confidence in walking the aisle, raising the hand, praying the prayer, meeting in the room, that I was not sure was trusting in Jesus Christ and what he had done for their salvation. Sounded to me like they were trusting in those five things that they were told to do at the end of the message about what we couldn't do to come to faith in Christ. Do you understand the illustration? It's about grace. It's not about what we do. It's about what he has done. Now, by the way, God used Charles Finney in an extraordinary way, and he still uses uh, people uh, in ways that bring others to himself. But at the end of the day, it's about grace, not about what we do. Oh, to acknowledge we bring nothing, we can do nothing, we open our heart to receive them. Does the central holding of the gospel have a hold of the central holding of our hearts here at Calvary Baptist Church? Secondly and finally, we live a humble life of crucifying pride. 327. Then what becomes of our boasting? A short, curt answer. It is excluded. There's a turn of phrase we use in English. There's got to be something in the water. Let's say there's a development, a bunch of homes in there, young families living in there. And, and, and one year, 16 of those households announce that they are pregnant. And some wag may say, I'll tell you what, there's something in the water over there, arguing that the cause of this mass uh, pregnancy has been, you know, it's, it's in the drinking water, just, just being playful saying that. What is in the drinking water of this broken world that we are ingesting? 1 John 2.16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. Pride is at the core of... uh, we, We just catch it by breathing the air. Burke Parsons, Pastor St. Andrew's Church in 
outside of Orlando, one of the Backstreet Boys in the boy band days, wonderful, godly man. The only way to persevere to the end is to pursue humility. We never arrive at humility. It's always running away from us because it cannot stand our pride. It's our constant pursuit of humility that keeps us chasing it, knowing that we'll never fully grasp it. Augustine said this, the city of man is defined by a love for self and a contempt for the kingdom of God. And the city of God is defined by a contempt of self and a love for the kingdom of God. When I read that, I had to ask myself, how much contempt for myself do I have? I fear I love myself too much and prefer myself too much. But there's nothing like the gospel that heals that awful wound that we got from Satan who seduced Adam and Eve because Satan was raised up in pride to take over everything and has cast a long shadow. You know, there's uh, immunotherapy that has been developed now. It's fascinating. And it's still uh, being developed and refined. It's a way of treating aberrant cells in our body by infusing our body with cells that manipulate the DNA of other cells and, for example, turn off cancer cells that want to grow or eat up cancer cells or promote death for cancer cells. Or, uh, it's called immunotherapy. It's like, Eric, I, you know, I, I, I recognize I'm proud. There's, what I'd like is a, some immunotherapy that would take down my pride. Here it is. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there's nothing that will dismantle our pride like standing at the cross and recognizing what God has done for us in Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Who can be proud when all that we have been given is a free gift to us that we didn't earn or deserve? We're not laced with proud hearts, but with grateful hearts for all that Christ has done. What's in your heart this morning? What's in mine? According to Paul, all boasting is excluded. As we stand on all that ground that is level at the cross, where the only common thing we have is our great need for Jesus. And what God graciously offers is all that is ours in him when we believe the news about him. Heavenly Father, work in these moments of response and consideration to find in Christ one all-sufficient, to surrender efforts that are present in our heart to relate to you any other way than on our knees with open hands receiving your grace. Work in this moment, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.